and welcome to another episode of the Boys in Red and White podcast. My name is Tom Dow and I'm joined as always by my best friend Andre Grayson. Hello Mr Dow. Hello Mr Grayson and we come into this podcast off the back of four points, uh, two home games, a 0-0 draw against Crystal Palace and then obviously the 3-0 win over Newcastle. So again, fairly positive progress that Arsenal have been making recently. Mm-hmm. Yep, our sheets are very clean as well, which is which is always pleasing. They are immaculate. <laughs> <laughs> They've been putting it put on put on the wash for the whitewash, and they are uh, fantastic. Sparkling, 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 sparkling sheets. The Daz is out. <laughs> okay, but before we can touch on those two games, we need to do our weekly commentary quiz for those that have not heard before. This commentary quiz requires both of us to select a piece of commentary from years gone by and we have to read it to the other person with no context or emotion and the other person has to try and guess what we are looking at or talking about, I should say. Um, So this week it is my turn first. So Andre, are you ready? Born ready. Okay, this is is a good one. I'm I'm pretty excited about this one. Our Shavin. Hmm. Well, oh, uh, is that his goal against? I mean, look, this could be literally anything. But are you specifically talking about his goal against Barca? I am, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously, regardless of whether it's a Clive Tilsey commentary or the Martin Tyler commentary, it's just Ah Shavi. Ah, ah, that was that was spectacular. That was such uh. I remember going to 12 pins from uni and I was, I was up there from about two o'clock and I just remember the anticipation building. Wouldn't get that luxury now. Now we're all working and what have you, but I remember the anticipation building and and there was just so much belief that we could actually finally beat Barcelona because we'd got close the year before with that two all, um, where Sesk broke his leg and we were playing so well, but no one saw it being our Sharvin who had been quite off form. But that moment and that move for those two goals, I was, I was actually, I was in the clock end lower towards where the corner flag is. If you're watching the TV and he ran towards me and I just, I, I was lost. I was lost. That moment was so euphoric. And that is, that for me is the Emirates moment. I I always um, think of nothing's got close to the explosion of noise that that goal brought about brought about. Uh, yeah, uh, I completely agree because uh, we we got the train up from Eastbourne, didn't we, from university mm-hmm. with uh, you, myself, and Chris Johns, I believe. Yes. Um, and it was <laughs> a very early start, and mm-hmm. it was a long, long day in preparation for it. But what an incredible moment! Um, and I just, obviously we had a fair bit to drink before that game, <laughs> but as soon as the game started, it just felt like, um, it was a, a, a massive sobering effect because it was just so tense yeah. and all of a sudden we just all felt like very much in control of things and, yeah. uh, and ready for the game. But, um, uh, amazing memories. Obviously I was sat in the North Bank lower for that one. So I was at the opposite end and I was fortunate enough to be right behind where both the goals were scored. I, I'm talking um, absolute rubbish. I was in the North Bank as well. I don't know what I, meant. <laughs> I said, clock air, but I was in the North Bank. 
<laughs> the the end I described there was the away end. I wasn't in the away end. <laughs> you you were in with the Barcelona fans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I agree with you entirely about that. That was that was the Emirates moment. If any anyone asked me for the moment that defines the Emirates era, it is that one because mm. we were playing obviously such good football. Um, and the two goals that we did score against, and particularly the second one, just epitomised what our football was like under Arsene Wenger at, at mo- most of the time, I should say. Yeah. Um, so a really, really fantastic uh, memory. And I, I, I knew you'd get it just from me saying his name. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think you've got to clip in both bits of commentary there because they're both unique and outstanding in their own way as well. Fabregas. It's Nazri. Can he go all the way here? Still Nazareth. Looks for Shavin! <laughs> Wonderful play from Arsenal. Arsene Wenger's philosophy put into practice and not even Barcelona can come up with an answer. Terrific pass to get Nasri clear. He's got support. Sami Nasri. Oh, Shavin! Dream goal. A Barcelona goal from Arsenal. Beautifully constructed. Devastating finish. Okay, so I'm. There's. I think you're going to get this from the first part of the line. So I'm actually just going to pause after that. Okay. Okay. Ready? No pressure. No pressure, but I am ready. (laughs) Worth a shot, surely. And then the next thing is, oh, dynamite. Absolute dynamite. (laughs) Um, Yes, correct. That is Cesc Fabregas away at Tottenham in a 3-1 win in 07-08. Yes, (laughs) yes. Oh, what a wonderful goal. Wonderful goal. <laughs> it really See, was. My, my memory of that is that I was playing football when that was happening. So I had a game in the morning um, and I think obviously it was a lunchtime kickoff. So I missed uh, most of the game. Um, and I remember someone on the sideline giving updates, which really annoyed me because I was hoping to try and <laughs> avoid what had happened. Mm. Um, but that obviously didn't happen because it never it ever happens <laughs> um but yeah there was a bunch of Tottenham fans there who were very happy when they were 1-0 up and then all of a sudden it went very quiet when we uh turned it round so um amazing goal and obviously that just was Cesc Fabregas at his absolute peak that year wasn't it like that was really when he made his his real breakthrough because although he'd he'd shown obviously the glimpses of what a fantastic talent he was before that and he was and he was already an integral part of our team it wasn't until that season that he started piecing everything together and scoring goals and creating goals with quite the regularity that he did that season so I think that moment just sums sums up Cesc Fabregas um, and how exciting that that team was. Yeah. And I say this quite frequently, but that is the last team that Arsenal have had where I felt a true connection to to that squad of players because every single player we had, I felt like I loved them. I felt like I would defend them until the cows came home. Um, even to an extent, players like William Gallas. So it it tells you everything that um, about that squad of players. And I think it was it's I, I suppose quite reminiscent to how we are now um, with 
bear with me with this, um, <laughs> with players like Emil Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka, it feels like the fans are starting to get behind Arsenal and Mikel Arteta because we have those young players coming through. And at the time in 07-08, that was very much in the era of Project Youth. So we had Cesc Fabregas, we had... Um, young players, uh, maybe obviously a bit older than Emil Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka, but that pieced together the whole of our team. And I think that's why I felt that that sort of intrinsic connection with what was going on at the club. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. My memories of that game, um, I watched it uh, as ever in, in a, a place called Lancora in Javier, um, and, and I, the highlights came up the other day, which is why it was on there for me. And about three, four minutes before that goal, Clichy clears one off the line, which is just one of those things you never remember. How they didn't score from a corner, I do not know. And it's amazing how little moments can be such a massive influence. I mean, even now, I mean, certainly when we go on to talk about the, the more recent games, just those small moments that can make such a difference in winning or losing, but when it's a derby, it's so sweet. And that goal was spectacular. And then it, it was bettered with, uh, I, I don't know who that commentator is, by the way. He's rare. Very He's rare. Very rare. But, uh, but you know. And I, oh! <laughs> yeah, yes, that was the one. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that commentary. Because it was, Denilson should have scored. He uh, should have, yeah. And he gets played out, and he's sort of going, oh, Arsenal had a real chance to put it. In. <laughs> 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 oh, great moments. Great well, moments. That, was in, that was in the midst of uh, Gareth Bale's run of, of uh, never being on the winning side as well, wasn't it? Because obviously a great he scored, run. He scored the free kick to put them 1-0 up. Um, and then... Yeah, I, I just, oh, I, I miss, I miss when it was every week they just kept reminding him of that fact and kept talking about it in the studio. Um, it was, it was fantastic. I, I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, as do I, my friend. As do I. But you know, happier times are are coming. Brzezinski on this left hand side. Fabregas joins him. Worth a shot, surely. Season he's having. His general play has been of the highest quality, and now five goals from midfield. Well, Arsenal have squandered a number of chances, and it's amazing that the one that they convert that possibly could win this game has come from all of 25 30 yards. Again, it's a neat build up, and he lets fly. And as well as Paul Robinson has played this afternoon, he can't get close to it. It's a fabulous strike. Okay, so moving on, I think it would be a good idea for us to go back to Thursday night where we drew 0-0 at home to Crystal Palace. Now, it was a really frustrating affair and not a game that will live long in the memory banks. Um, But it was another point and we remained unbeaten again and we obviously kept another clean sheet. So there were some positives to be taken from it, but it was overall just a really, really frustrating evening. Uh, what were your thoughts of that game, Andre? Yeah, it's um, it's one of those where it felt very familiar, didn't it, after about 20 minutes. I thought we started the game quite well, and then we go into this lull where you just fear for us, really. Uh, we look like we could have played... Well, I think you texted me this, uh, saying we could play until next week without scoring. Um I thought we defended a lot better. There was a few iffy moments. I mean, Palace is such a strange team because they can be so solid defensively, 
But Zaha and Benteke, they are a threat as well. I mean, particularly Zaha, he's he's desperate to go down, isn't he? Have you ever seen a player who is more desperate to hit the deck than Wilfred Zaha? And look no, at the I ref. <laughs> he is the whingiest git. He honestly, he's always looking at the ref, neither here nor there. But I think my overriding feelings were, if you look at the block of six games we've just had, including the Newcastle one, we weren't going to win, you know, for us to have turned it round to a point where we win them all did feel a step too far. And I just felt this Palace game was that step too far. And really what it showed as well is how important Kieran Tierney is. Um, Mm. Not that he was overly influential against Newcastle, but just the difference... And also, you know, one of the things you wonder is, was having a right-footed left-back, did that really stunt our play that much? Hard to know whether it was one of those games or whether we are a team that really, if we don't have all the parts we need, including Tierney, we won't, we won't win many games. That's sort of my overriding emotion is, we just need all the pieces and we're a good team and we can win a lot of games. But the minute a cog is out of place, we completely stutter. Yeah, I think we we touched on it certainly last week in the podcast where we spoke about squad depth. And I think that's what we're seeing. Whenever there is an injury or there's um, a suspension or something like that, there's it's so noticeable having one person out. We said after the Palace game, and I, I think I tweeted it, that we shouldn't miss a left back as much as we did. Mm. But I think, like you say, we you take one cog out of that system and it's a disaster. Well, not a disaster. That's but that's being uh, far too um, over the top um, <laughs> with that statement. <laughs> but uh, you, you get this sort of general idea that we just we do struggle. And particularly, I thought Palace were very good in terms of restricting the space that we allowed, that they allowed Emil Smith Rowe because. Um, mm. Because that felt like the way that we were going to get anything from from that game from a, from a goal scoring perspective, and they really did sort of keep the gaps between their midfield and the defence really tight, which restricted us from uh, really do, uh, doing anything. Yeah. What did really frustrate me was that as, as well as the Crystal Palace defended and set up, we didn't do anything to really force their hand at all. We didn't stretch them. We didn't really have that much movement off the ball. And as a result of that, it made it very easy for Crystal Palace to keep their two banks in a set formation. And there were very, very rare occasions where they actually deviated from that setup. So as much as you do have to give credit to Crystal Palace, I don't think we really asked enough questions, which I think just goes to show that this is obviously a a recurring problem that we've spoken about, about this lack of guile and creativity in our teams. And as much as Emil Smith-Rowe coming in has made a big difference and hopefully will continue to make a big difference, he can't do it every game on his own. Um, he needs to have someone else there to to sort of supplement him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I touched on that on a on a string of tweets that I did uh, that I posted out today, that the big problem for Arsenal now is going to be trying to find someone who can essentially rotate with Emil Smith-Rowe because he's made himself undroppable at the moment because of his performances, but also just because he is a number 10 and he's the only number 10 that we have at the club. So because of that, we're in a situation where we either have to find something internally, which doesn't look like we have, or we're going to have to go into the market and get some, which I know we'll we'll touch on that a a little bit later. Um, 
but that's probably the biggest problem I see. I know I've sort of gone off on a, a tangent from initially talking about Kieran Tierney, but I think that's a, uh, a really big issue that, that was sort of brought to my attention from the Palace game. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But also, how effective can the number 10 be when they plug that middle? It's really hard to know because um, they, just, they just said go wide. They just said, go wide and lob it in if you want. And lots of teams do that. And it's so hard to break down. The overriding thing I wrote down uh, in prep for this, for the Palace game, was I just put Xhaka, symbol of Arsenal. Because he had one of the most bizarre games I've ever seen. (laughs) On one hand, defensively, he was maybe the best he's ever been. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. (laughs) Some of the blocks, some of the tackles, some of the intercepts. He was amazing. He was so sloppy on the ball. Um, and, you know, <laughs> most of the time uh, when he was winning it back, it was from a, a, a terrible turnover where he had lost it in quite a dangerous place. But then brilliant recovery runs, great tackles. Uh, weird. But I just feel like that is us. We are, we, we, we are the archetypal box of chocolates. You really do not know what you're going to get from us. Um, but I suppose mean it really from an attacking sense, because I have to say one of the things we definitely need to talk about and then bleeding into the Newcastle game is defensively, we have got a really solid foundation. And where I think you have to give Arteta a huge amount of praise across the last few games, and even if you look at this season as well, all things considered, we've had Gabriel out, we've had Marie out, we've had different fullbacks, but we have stayed largely solid, which I think is a real testament to his coaching because you don't have to go back too far in our recent history to see how much more solid we are. Um, so I have to say, I'm, I'm really pleased and impressed with that, because whilst we want that verve and vigour in attack, and perhaps the trade-off being so strong defensively means we don't go forward with the same sort of um, pizzazz as we would like, but we are so solid now, and that's a huge testament to Arteta's coaching. Yeah, um, and what what I was going to say is sort of to continue on with that theme is that I thought that that disastrous period where we were dropping down the table every single game, um, it felt like the thing that had changed was, well, the only thing that had changed was that we were being sloppy defensively, which was not something you'd associate with Arteta at the start of his reign in charge, and then obviously what's happening now. So it feels like we've sort of got back to where we were. And what I did wonder is if if you think maybe that this has coincided with the, the attempt to change a system, because obviously now we are consistently playing that back four. We're not really rotating from that. We've got a set team that's working like that. Um, and I, I just wonder whether that that horrific form sort of coincided with that that coaching towards the players and about how they were taking those ideas on board. And maybe it just took them a little bit longer than we would have liked for them to really understand the system that Mikel Arteta wants them to play. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, the thing is, is that uh, the reason I sort of am quite calm, I suppose, about things when we're not breaking teams down is because really we are still setting a foundation. And we needed that foundation to be able to springboard and go again. And I think now what we're starting to see with the way Smith-Rowe and Saka particularly are combining is we are likely to create more of those chances, more than just, you know, the one. 
I think we all felt in the Newcastle game, or certainly I did, when Aubameyang missed that chance from a couple of yards out. And there's a lot of like, ah, oh, you know, it wasn't as easy a chance. Come on, he's two yards out. It's Aubameyang. He's got to score. <laughs> he has to score. Um, I, I appreciate I would have missed that and I wouldn't have hit the post, right? I don't know my leg. <laughs> my leg's not reaching that short. Like, but I'm not, I'm not a world-class striker. Once I'm in the position, anyway. But when he missed that, I was more annoyed with him than perhaps I should be because I thought, is that our chance for the game? Is this going to be nil-nil? Because we seem to get one big one. Even in all the losses, there was one big chance we we missed. Um, But I just feel like there's much more in that attacking third now that we will likely get that chance. And actually setting that platform is by far the best way we're going to climb the table. and, And so it's proved. Yeah, and I think having having a consistent team is just it, it, it's invaluable. Um, obviously, having that number ten in there in Emil Smith Rowe is, is is priceless. But having Saka now, who seemingly has made that right hand berth his his own, mm. having him there and consistently in one position is allowing him to build some form, and that's something which we hadn't really seen because every single game he seemed to be playing somewhere different. Um, and now, obviously, Lacazette's been given a run in the team rather than it being Lacazette, then Nketiah, then Lacazette again, then Aubameyang in there. We seem to have decided, you know what, he didn't work with Aubameyang down the middle. He's better suited coming in from the left. Um, and I think that's what we have seen. Is just, it's just it's so much more structured because they all know their defined roles. Um, so I think that's really, really important. Uh, going back to Aubameyang, obviously... Two massive goals. And I, I tweeted at half-time of the Newcastle game and said that, and I know we text back and forth about it as well, and said that may, maybe it's not a game for him. Maybe it's a game for Martinelli to come off the bench because the sheer number of times that Aubameyang had isolated the fullback and then just didn't look like he had the confidence or belief in himself that he was going to beat them um, w- was concerning. But then he's come out for the second half and got himself into a similar situation for, for the first goal. And it's it's a testament to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and, and his ability to put those misses behind him because he then did exactly what we thought he should have done in the first half and drove at someone, didn't hesitate and just basically worked off instinct. And I think that was so important. And then to, the second goal is just a typical Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang goal where he's just in the right place at the right time. Obviously, the credit for that goal will go to Cedric, but... Um, I was just impressed again that Aubameyang was getting into those situations. And if you give him that sort of service, he will get back to scoring the amount of goals that he was scoring. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree. I agree. And look, if you look at the next set of fixtures, you know, the only way we'll climb this table or continue this run is if Aubameyang's scoring. It was a point they made on Sky yesterday. I think uh, Jamie Carragher was saying it. I don't know if you watched the remaining analysis after the game was finished. I tend not to. But one of the things he was saying was, you know, it's all very well and good playing really well. You need someone who's going to put the ball in the back of the net. And actually, Aubameyang has been under par so far this season. If he can even get to par, you know, he's close to a goal a game when he's on fire for us. And if he's doing that, as well as the way we're playing and the way some players are playing their way into form, then... You know, we could be looking at the top six. I mean, we are only 10 points off the top, as I keep saying. You know, it's not over yet. You know, <laughs> the title's not I, over I yet. I tell you now, Man United, got to come to us next week. And they're going to be right <laughs> up for it. 
And I would love it if we beat them. Love it. He's got to go to Middlesbrough. <laughs> and he's got to get something. And I'll something. tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but then you look at the fixtures. Southampton away. I mean, also, if Southampton beat Shrewsbury tonight, which we'll know by the time the episode is out, why not just play that as a double header? You know, American sports style. Southampton don't want to play a second game. We don't want to play a second game. Cup League combo. I'm all for Winner it. Winner takes all. <laughs> we, I'm so up for it. I'm so up for it. I like, I like, the, I like the sound of that. I think, uh, I think we should embrace uh, what they do in American sports and do that. Yeah, the double header. I love it. Extra time in the Premier League for the first time. Oh, I think, it, I think it's got legs, that idea. But hopefully Shrewsbury win, because um, that would be a lot... Uh, that would be really useful, um, but it won't. And two trips to St. Mary's in quick succession, not ideal. Then Man U at home, which is a massive game and going to be really tough. Um, but knowing the way big games are built up at the moment, that will no doubt be nil-nil. Wolves away, Wolves off form, Villa, who knows? Leeds at home, City at home in the league. I mean, it's quite a run of games, as well as that City game is sandwiched between two Benfica ties. Then Leicester away. I mean, where we are at the end of February is going to be so interesting because we 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 only beat Man U in the corresponding fixtures out of those next ones I just listed. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up our, our run of fixtures because as much as it's nice that we have got a run of games together where we have picked up some points, um, that's going to be the true test about how much we have recovered because... It, there's bound to be some ups and downs in there. There's bound to be, um, I don't think any Arsenal fan would, would suggest that we're not going to lose at least some of those games. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be about how we respond to those defeats and how we react to knowing that we've got those difficult games on the horizon. So it will be interesting. And as you say, end of February, we'll have a far clearer idea about where this team's at and what this team needs. Um so, yeah, I think that kind of uh, covers most of uh, Palace and Newcastle, unless there's anything else you wanted to add. No, no, I, I think uh, I think that's it. Just a shout out. I thought Thomas Party was excellent and uh, talking of signings and we're, we're in the window. Um, you know, that he looks, he actually looks too good for this team. <laughs> he looks sort of out of place with his quality and his pass, uh, you know, his pass out to Aubameyang was perfectly good for the first goal but it was the way he broke out of that midfield space and sprung us into life and Newcastle weren't set that's the difference you don't get that from Xhaka you don't get that from Ceballos you don't get that from El Elneny and that is why we're all so excited about him he, he's so exciting and everything he does is just it's just a half second quicker than anyone else that we have in those positions mm. he gets the ball he looks up he sees he sees a pass and plays that pass yeah, and it's it sounds so simple, but it's just the way he does it is just so effective. And it, it, providing we keep him fit, he's going to make a massive, massive difference to this side. He really is. Yeah. Um, and I think he's a testament that there has been a shift in our transfer policy, and we're starting to see um, a more structured and considered approach in the transfer window. So that's obviously another conversation for another day, but. Uh, really, really exciting and uh, promising signs uh, with Thomas Partey. Absolutely, absolutely. And while we wax lyrical um, about a uh, midfielder signed from Spain, we probably need to talk about the one we, are, well, our master superstar Mesut that's that's gone. 
We do. We need to speak about Brother Meza, don't we? <laughs> we do. We do. I uh, I mean, I can't believe it. I, I think we spoke on an earlier pod saying if we can get rid of Ozil this window, it's an absolute triumph. Um, um, look, we needed to, it sums it all up. We need to get a bank, uh, a loan from the Bank of England just to be able to get rid of him. Uh, if you ever wanted an indication of how much he's on. Uh, <laughs> we literally <laughs> yeah. took out a loan to get rid of Meza Ozil. It's, you couldn't make it up. Um, but it's it's uh, with regret he leaves in these circumstances. Uh, you know, I, I'm so melancholy about the fact it's ended like this. But since he signed the contract, he wasn't the same player. And it really is split in two parts with Ozil, isn't it? Pre and post. Because pre-contract, I have said this so many times to anyone who was berating him and slagging him off about his body language or what have you, particularly non-Arsenal fans, I would say when I go to the Emirates and he's playing and he's on it, he is the best player to watch in the league by a, a country mile because I've never seen technique like it. And he, the moment he signed, was so excited. I'm so relieved it's over and we can actually evaluate what his legacy, you know, was. I'm glad you used the word legacy there because that leads me very nicely into a question that I wanted to ask you. Okay. Um, because what I've seen on social media in the in the last few days, and obviously we'll come back to about Meza Ozil specifically uh, in a minute, but what I've seen loads of is people arguing about what constitutes a legend because some people will say or would argue that Meza Ozil is a legend, and obviously there's the other camp that would say no, definitely not. He's not done enough for Arsenal Football Club. So, from your perspective, mm-hmm. what do you think constitutes a club legend? Yeah, I think there's a few. So, I think being part of a winning league or European Cup sort of automatically puts you in. Yeah. Um. I think you've got to win top honours. And, you know, I think the FA Cup isn't that, in in all honesty. However, I think scoring the winner in an FA Cup final twice absolutely writes you into folklore. I think just having a really good game in a couple of finals probably doesn't. So I think you've got to be part of a winning league team or something incredibly memorable in a final. That's why, for me, Aaron Ramsey is is a club legend, but Meza Ozil is not. Uh, Meza Ozil is legendary, probably within the game. You know, he's won the World Cup. Did he win the Champions League with Real Madrid? I don't think he did. No, I don't. Did I think that was... I, he might have done. I can't... I'm, I'm not... But he, not was, he was amazing when he was 21. He was incredible for Cristiano Ronaldo. He is... He's absolutely a legend of the game. Um, but he's not an Arsenal legend. Um, I wish he was. I think when he signed, I couldn't have imagined a scenario where he played for us for seven and a half years and wasn't a club legend. And it's more around what he brought, right? He brought, he gave us belief that we were stepping up to a new level. And then when we signed Alexis Sanchez, you went, okay, this is a serious caliber of player. And when those two were on song together, it was so clear their quality compared to the rest of the team. Um, but I think you have to reflect on the time and go, no, he, he wasn't for me. What, a, what do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think you sort of categorised it quite well into, into what, what probably makes up a, uh, a club legend. Um, and I think there's, there's certain players who kind of break that mould because they maybe um, were, weren't maybe as involved in those sort of 
special moments, but but brought brought like a culture to the club or, or some sort of um, personality that, that sort of made them memorable for certain things. Um, so there's players like that, but I think you're right that you need to be within winning those major honours, those big honours to be considered a club legend. Um, Oza will be a player that I remember for the whole time that I'm an Arsenal supporter because at times, like you've said many times before, you go and that's why you pay for a season ticket to see players like that and to see someone performing as well as he was performing. And I'm like you, I, I've had so many arguments with people about, about his body language because quite frankly, I never cared about that. Mm. Um, the, the the big thing that got me about Meza Ozil was how much people wanted him to be something that he wasn't. And it was about asking him to be this tough tackling midfielder. And I never understood the, the, the call for that. Oh, he doesn't work hard enough. It's like, well, quite frankly, if he creates six chances a game, I don't care about his work rate off the ball particularly. I don't care that he's not performing slide tackles. Uh, I'm not that bothered that he's not tracking back the uh, centre forward for the opposition team. <laughs> yeah. um, I want him to be in the final third doing what, he does best and I think the reason why his legacy isn't better than it was certainly in the, the first half of his his uh, Arsenal career is because he there wasn't a team around him that were on the level that he was mm-hmm. if you produced a team that was on the level that he was and produced a, a back four that could defend properly or uh, a, a, maybe one or two players of a slightly higher calibre then I think we would be talking about someone who helped us win the league um, but yeah. we always felt like we were a couple of players short from being able to compete right at the very top. But yeah. that would be my my sort of summary of Meza Ozil um, at Arsenal. But what 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 a player in 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 his pomp! Mm. What an absolute privilege it was to watch him play football. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, he 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 as well. I think just adding to the sort of club legend type thing. He, he never really scored that massive goal either. And he did go missing in those, you know, more important games. I wouldn't say bigger games because he did score against a lot of um, top opposition, uh, namely Chelsea and Man U at home. And he was so instrumental. I mean, N'Golo Kante is still looking for Meza Ozil as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing. That like, turn. Ngolo, that that, turn. Absolutely. And that was the thing with Ozil, right, is he made you proud of like, he destroyed players. There was a turn he did in front of, uh, in front of us at Selhurst Park. Uh, he won a free kick. It blew my mind. That, uh, my favourite Meza Ozil moment is absolutely out of nowhere. It's against Hull um, at the KC, and there's a long ball lofted over to him, and it's behind him, and it's in the air, and he you, he flicks his right heel and spins it round a defender to Sanchez, and it was like. How can you do that? Or his assist for Giroud against Aston Villa. Olivier Giroud had never one. been one-on-one with a goalkeeper in his life. But even <laughs> Meza Ozil managed to give him a whole half of pitch to run into. And it was just, he was spectacular. And some of the moments sort of, they give you chills. And they are what football is all about. But the last two, three years, you know, really... He wasn't he wasn't that Meza Ozil, but as you said, in his prime, he was you were proud he played for your club. 
Yeah, and I think just to build on from what you just said about your favourite Mesut Ozil moment, I think my favourite Mesut Ozil moment was, uh, again, not a goal, not an assist, but it was uh, uh, during a 3-3 draw at Anfield, and it was a long ball into the opposition oh. half, and it's a touch which just brings it under under his spell out of absolutely nowhere. And you can hear the whole stadium collectively just fall silent for just a split second because the touch is that good. Yeah. And I think that was that was one of my favourite ever mo- moments from Eze Ozil because it just it, it made you stand back and go, I don't understand how someone can be that good. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. And, it, and, and, and I also think he was a player that you could appreciate those moments. But if you ever watched him try and find space in the final third when we were defending um, or had the ball in our defence, people don't think he worked. He worked hard to find space. You know, he really did. He always topped um, the charts in terms of running. And if you, where I, where, well, you and I have, I know we have opposite perches, but you know when you're watching that player try and find space, his movement was incredible off the ball. Um, and I think it was one of those really underrated skills. But again, you know, that's not seen on TV, which is how, you know, so many people consume content. And it's such a shame that there was a fan base for him. Uh, and I know this is something you wanted to talk about, but it is such a shame he had a cult because it did create a real toxicity around him when it, it really didn't need to. Yeah, it created a divide, um, much like there was a divide about the, the arson in or arson out uh, argument. Um, it. It's something which I think has gone on to, I think this is obviously a part of social media in itself, but basically anything that is remotely divisive, there, there, there isn't, doesn't appear to be a middle ground anymore. It, it, it seems to be you either believe this or you believe that and that's it. And it doesn't seem to be that payoff where it could be, well, I see this approach from one side and this approach. And I think that's uh, very much a um, an issue in society, not just... Um, Mm. but he's I I hope I really hope that by going to Fenerbahce he takes his fanboys with him because I'm sick to death of having this culture at this club where there's people who support Mesut Ozil and not Arsenal Football Club there's one account which I can't even remember what it's called who um, basically is just a Mesut Ozil fan account and he suggested the other day that Mikel, he wanted Arsenal to lose because um, to get Mikel Arteta, Arteta sacked. And I just, I couldn't believe that there's people that have that view that to suit their agenda or to suit what they believe within their football, within their football world, that they would want their football club to lose a match. I just can't imagine any scenario where I would willfully wish Arsenal to lose a game. And, I, I don't understand this whole approach with football. I, I love football. I love individual players. But I don't love any individual player as much as I love my football club. Mm. And I just do not understand how anyone can have that affinity with an individual when it is a team sport. It just is it's completely lost on me. But I really, really hope that we see an end to that and hopefully a bit more, a bit more of a collective with Arsenal uh, as a football club, because at the moment there still does feel like there's that divide. Mm. And obviously with, particularly if I go back to um, 
a few weeks ago and we obviously had the conversation on on air about should Mikel Arteta go or not and it was very much starting to build a camp of Arteta out Arteta in and that was quite quite worrying and and that seems to have uh, been quietened down now obviously through the the recent results but it would just be great if the whole of the Arsenal um supporting um world would just come together and sort of all be on the same page for once because it's felt like a long time since that was the case yeah. and unfortunately I think Meza Ozil has been a, a major contributor to that because even even at his absolute peak there was still the people who didn't like him because of his body language because of his lack of defensive nous um, and it, it's felt like for the majority of his Arsenal career that has existed. Mm. He he has been a lightning rod. He has been a lightning rod, and, and you you know, if you leap to his defence, you know, it felt like to me it feels a little bit sort of uh, defending the foreign style a little bit, a European style, because no one in England would ever have the technique of Meza Özil. Never in a million years. Apart from. Bakayo Saka and Emil Smith Rowe. <laughs> Apart from them two. Um, I, th- I think you are right historically, though. Um, yeah. We've not had many players that have come near to having that sort of technique. We've had some great players that have come through this country, but not not, not to the level that... If we think of those two examples that we've just described, the turn at Selhurst Park and obviously uh, the touch at Hull and then obviously the touch at Anfield as well. Mm. I, d- I don't see an Eng- England player doing that. No, no. And, and on the subject of England players... Uh, <laughs> well, this is a flawless transition. Go on. I've got to talk about the recently retired Shrek um, impersonator, Wayne Rooney, because some of the... Um, what is it, a eulogy? You can't really call it a eulogy when someone retires, but some of the comments from the professional footballing world, notably Arsenal players calling him a legend made me incredibly angry. Now, I, I'm i an Arsenal fan first, England fan second, probably third after Barnet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm totally honest. And whilst I did, I remember when Wayne Rooney burst on the scene in 2004, I remember watching it on a, a tiny TV. We were playing Croatia and he was incredible. It was like, wow, this player is amazing. Still a bit angry. He scored his first goal against us, which was a worldie off the bar and in. Um, and I sort of, ad- I really liked Wayne Rooney. Uh, and I sort of admired because he was a real, he was incredible. And I thought he was going to be a world superstar. Um, however, he cheated us out of our biggest accomplishment as a club. And it's the worst dive you have ever, ever seen and this is a man who was full of foul mouth tirades at referees he was a disgusting role model he was an absolute he was everything a professional footballer shouldn't be and it's just forgotten about because he's softly spoken and went to America for a bit but he's a cheat he's he's an absolute scumbag he's everything wrong with football that was allowed to succeed that just drives me so mad I hated him as a player. I hope he takes Derby down immediately um, because I cannot stand him. He's a cheat. He's a cheat. That was the worst moment of my life. And he cheated. And how Sol Campbell wrote, it was a pleasure to play with you on Instagram. I could have deleted Sol there and then. (laughs) 
because I was so angry because I don't understand. For me, that was the biggest travesty in English football that has ever existed. Maybe I've overdone it with that last line, but in Arsenal's history, that was probably the biggest travesty. I'm not sure you have overstated it, if I'm honest, because <laughs> I've, I've to this date, still not seen a game that has been quite as poorly officiated. And I'm convinced that there was something going on there because, the, I mean, Man United should have been down to nine men by half-time. They could have mm-hmm. been down to eight men. Van Nistelrooy should have been sent off. Gary Neville should have been sent off for about 15 assaults. Rio Ferdinand should have been sent off for being last man on Freddie Lundberg. So that's three already, and that's before anything's even happened. And then, obviously, the dive. The dive. I I, I cannot believe that no one ever says anything about it, no. apart from Arsenal fans. And Arsenal fans apparently are just bitter because of that, of losing our unbeaten run. No, well, I am bitter about that. I'm fucking bitter about that. Don't get me wrong. But I'm bitter for a reason, and it's because Wayne Rooney is a cheating bastard. <laughs> And, look, and I'm with, I'm with Neville, you on that. Gary Neville still talks about Pires. Don't talk about he Pires. Does. Talk about Wayne Rooney. He's a cheat. He was always yeah. cheating. Look a bit closer to home, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you ugly bastard. Oh, I hate him. And uh, good riddance, as far as I'm concerned. Have... <laughs> Not a happy retirement. Good riddance. I hope you take Derby down, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, having said that, uh, his tackle in the MLS and crossfield ball for that goal is one of the best moments I've ever seen on the pitch. And uh, whilst I'm angry, I, I uh, and I hate him and I hate how he'll be remembered because I don't understand how that isn't mentioned every time his name comes up with his legacy, which in fairness, if you talk club legends and legacy, he absolutely is one. Uh, there's yeah. no question. And he was amazing. And part of the reason I hate him so much is because he scored against us all the time and he was so good. But I just, I, I don't know why that doesn't come up more because it was awful. Uh, and I hate him. Um, yeah. Anyway. And Let's, breathe. And breathe. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. So on a, uh, a more uplifting note than Wayne Rooney, um, what we thought we'd do for this week, rather than just go and look at a kit or anything that, like that, or a specific um, year or moment, we thought we'd look at uh, one, uh, we've each chosen a goal against Newcastle because we seem to score a lot of goals against them. <laughs> so we've each chosen a goal against Newcastle and we've also each chosen a goal by Meza Ozil. So there's two goals again each, but this week we're going to break it down into those two. So, Andre, would you like to tell me your first goal by Meza Ozil? Yes. Yes, I would. Um, and I had to bring this up because of its sim symbolic nature it was against Bournemouth most people probably forget this game but it was a game where we actually really started to believe Uh, Gabriel scored from a corner um, and in the second half uh, Meza Ozil combines with Giroud Uh, he plays a a lovely one too and he had that lovely way of finding his way into the box sort of uh, never really spotted he did it so well he tucks a finish under uh, under I think Boric Um, And it was just one of those moments where you really, really started to believe. It was really special. I think we'd just beaten Man City as well, if memory serves. Um, But the reason I had to mention it is because later in 12 pins that evening was where I created the Meza Ozil chant. 
<laughs> Here we go. Let's go. Go. No, I um I was in uh to the pub. It was fairly rammed. The Piet song had just come out, right? So, you know, I know we love to have ownership, but Dimitri Payet was absolutely banging them in for West Ham. And a song was sung, ironically, against Bournemouth after he scored an absolute belting free kick, which was, we've got Payet. And Mark played that song to me, and I went, that would go really well with Meza Ozil. And so we sang it. And then the whole pub sang it. And then a week later, we went to Stoke. And it was sung there where it was a supposedly born, but it wasn't. It was born in the 12 pins and it's my greatest ever achievement. <laughs> it wasn't born there. It was born in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you know, right? <laughs> if I had a trademark, that was my charm and no one can take it away from me. But um, it, was a, it was a moment. It was a, the goal is less significant, but it was one of those games where we won 2-0 at a canter and it felt like champions. And he was, we were sort of... Um, Arsenal were following the Meza Ozil tune and it was where his influence was really high in this team and he was playing spectacular stuff. He really was. And that is one of the uh, the saddest things about his departure is that we can no longer sing that song. Uh, either, well, either we've last... got Smithrow. We've got Smithrow. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's fine then. I feel, I feel fine about the whole situation now. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry for ruining your point. What were you actually going to say? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, even last year when he wasn't really playing, or whether, or when he um, first came back into the team and he was not quite himself, he we still sang that song every week. So it's uh, it's going to be sad to see that one go, but hopefully that's replaced with uh, something else quite soon. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, now it's time for my Mesut Ozil goal, and this is a goal that I have spoken about on the podcast before. And no doubt said that it's one of my favourite goals of all time, because I say that a lot. <laughs> um, but this is a goal that genuinely is probably in my top 10. And it is Meza Ozil's goal against Manchester United in a 3-0 win. And obviously, this was a game where we went into a three-goal lead within the first 20 minutes and were two up inside six minutes. Um, and it's a goal which I think just summarises Arsenal and Mesut Ozil up because the football was perfect. Every single pass was was precise and immaculate. And the way that the ball was worked from Santi Cazorla deep inside our own half um, into the feet of Sanchez with a delightful flick um, into Mesut Ozil, perfectly weighted ball and a perfectly timed run from Theo Walcott so that he can run at daily blind and then not the ball back to the edge of the box where Ozil was there to bend it into the bottom corner. And everything's done at just such a pace, which is something which we were so much better at when Meza Ozil was on top form. And that goal for me was just perfection. There's there's no other word for it for me. It was a mm. perfect goal. And we've been blessed over the years that we've seen so many goals by Arsenal that you could probably describe in a similar way. But that, for me, was one of them. And it was against one of our rivals, a big team, and we produced that moment of football. And we did that consistently in those opening 20 minutes. But that was another one where, obviously not to level the Barcelona, our shaving goal, but it was an explosion of noise at the Emirates um, when that went in. Yeah, it really was. I know we talked about it recently as well, but it is uh, poetry in motion. 
Okay, Andre, would you like to tell me your goal uh, choice against Newcastle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. And and you know we're texting about this, and and this isn't doing a lot for my um, anger levels, um, which is why I've decided to talk about this goal, which was we beat them four one. Um, Giroud scored a lovely header in this game. Kazola scores a wonderful goal that I could have chosen where the ball plays into him. He bursts past the keeper, dings it over him. Lovely. Then there was another one, the third goal. Giroud at the near post flicks it up off the outside of his left boot, hits post bar and in. Sumptuous. No, I'm going to talk about Santi Kazola's chipped penalty in that game. <laughs> The goalie, I believe, I don't even know who the goalie was. It might have been Carl Darlow, actually. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to check. But it was a young goalie. Um, and Santi Cazorla, it, it's not even a dink. It's it's less of a Penenka. It rolls in the net. It, he sends the, the keeper goes, uh, keeper goes to the keeper's right. Cazorla chips it down the middle. The headline the next day was Arsenal are disrespectful. Arsenal are disrespectful to Newcastle. Santi Cazorla, the man best known for smiling constantly, is a disrespectful man and needs to take his job more seriously. And it, I, I, it's clearly stuck with me because I don't know why this came to me. <laughs> <laughs> I do not know when we talk about all these wonderful goals and describe them beautifully and it's such joy to talk about. There's been so many against Newcastle. But I just remember that anti-Arsenal agenda that comes up from time to time. If it wasn't Eduardo's supposed dive against Celtic or Xhaka's bizarre red against Swansea, neither of which have been talked about before, no. Now we're capable of disrespectful penalties against Newcastle. Um, But also, it really was quite disrespectful, um, to be perfectly honest with you. Whilst I'm all for it in professional sport, we... I hate Newcastle. We know this. Uh, I know it's something we've discussed before. And the fact we have such a hold on them is just absolutely magnificent. The only time they've beaten us in recent history was when we basically threw in the towel in Wenger's last season and contrived to lose from being 1-0 up, which we specialised at um, somehow. But yeah, I just remember Cazorla chipping that goalie. And it was a real, you know, you know, it really feels good. And one of the things I miss, and it would have happened yesterday, you wouldn't really have celebrated that third goal with like the verve you would have when we go 1-0 up against a team like Newcastle. Yeah. It's that sort of, way. So even the celebrations would be taking the piss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just like, that, another goal, fantastic. And it's just, we support a wonderful club that does that very regularly. And this was one of those moments. I do love hearing when you get really irate about something. I love it. I absolutely love it because the the rants are always epic and uh, so satisfying to the ears. So thank you for that. Pleasure. No half measures. What what is yours? (laughs) What is your Newcastle goal? Uh, My Newcastle goal is actually Theo Walcott's first of his hat-trick against Newcastle in a 7-3 win. So um, what I loved about the goal was that he picked the ball up on the left-hand side um, ran pretty much from the halfway line all the way to the goal and then just curled it effortlessly into the far corner. Very, very Thierry Henry-esque. And I think that's what I liked about it because any time there is an opportunity to draw a comparison to a finish by Thierry Henry, I'm all Mm. for it. Um, And I think whenever, and I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here and go and start talking about Henry rather than Theo Walcott, but what I love about that is that with modern football, any time 
there is a finish from the left-hand side curled into the far corner, it is invariably compared to Thierry Henry. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about that sort of finish because it always draws parallel to Henry. And that's why he's one of the greatest players to ever play in English football and to ever play football, period, because he pretty much trademarked that move. And I think that's, mm. a, that's a testament to Thierry Henry. But going back to Theo Walcott, obviously that was the season when he really, really took off and he looked like he was going to become the player that we we thought he could become. And he was scoring goals left, right and centre. Really impressive hat-trick that day, I remember. Obviously the second was a, a really lovely finish on the volley. And then his third one was a fantastic uh, cheeky dribble and then chip over the goalkeeper, despite being fouled and what would have been a penalty. Um, it was just a fantastic hat-trick. But the first goal was just sheer, sheer... It just looked so casual, but so brilliant at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And that was, that was a wonderful occasion. I remember I was in the uh, North Bank, definitely North Bank, not Clock End, North Bank uh, in Block 6 uh, with my dad. And I remember that game. It was just such a thriller. 1-0, uh, 1-0, 2-1, 2-0, 3-0, 3-0, 7-3. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> lovely finish lovely finish <laughs> for sure okay so that brings us to the end of the podcast but what we do need to do is we need to announce the winner of our shirts giveaway now before the podcast began we used a random generator to decide who was going to be the winner and the winner of our shirt giveaway is johnny who we'll get in contact with and sort out his shirt to be delivered to him so well done Johnny and well done to everyone else who entered and got the correct answer as well because there was quite a few correct answers in there so well done and some really nice descriptions of that moment which I which I enjoyed as well yeah absolutely and I think you know just to let everyone know it was Thierry Henry against Leeds of course which I think everyone got right apart from one person who just put Henri which uh they still went in the draw (laughs) They did go in the draw because obviously it was uh, just just a wonderful, wonderful memory, a wonderful moment. And uh, hopefully everyone who took part enjoyed playing and uh, Johnny, enjoy your shirt. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the Boys in Red and White podcast. It's been a pleasure talking about all these wonderful moments as always. Andre, thank you for your time. Pleasure as always, Mr. Dow. And if you'd like to see what we're up to on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook by searching for the Boys in Red and White podcast. And you can also go to our website, which is www.theboysinredandwhite.com. Thank you very much for listening. And we will be back next week with another podcast. Thank you and goodbye. (laughs) 